that sounds familiar. And we are back after a long wait. Welcome everyone to episode 112 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network. And finally, the New York Rangers have a new coach. Peter Laviolette was officially announced by the team as the 37th head coach in franchise history on Tuesday. It was a long time coming. It was a name that we had all been hearing about and speculating about for weeks leading up to that. But now, finally, we can discuss and dissect and talk about this new head coach hiring for the New York Rangers. We're going to get into everything that we can expect from La Violette with this week's guest, Tom Galitti, who covers the Washington Capitals for NHL.com and spent a lot of time around La Violette the previous three seasons. So that should be an interesting conversation where we get to know the coach that the Rangers are getting a little bit more and talk about what happened during his tenure in D.C. But let's start by running through everything that's happened since we last spoke. And I have to tell you guys, I thought I was going to be recording this podcast a couple weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I was like, you know what? It's been a few weeks. I think it's time to come back. Even though they hadn't announced the coach yet, I was thinking, you know, it was time. I wanted to kind of let you guys know what I had been hearing and discuss where they were at in the search. But there were also whispers that they were getting close to the finish line. And at the same time, other coaches or teams that had coaching vacancies were starting to make their announcements. So I'm thinking, all right, you know what? It could happen any day now. Maybe I should wait instead of recording a podcast that might kind of be old news by the time it comes out. So I waited two weeks ago. Then last week, I was sure it was going to happen. I was hearing from a pretty reliable source middle of the week last week that they were getting close with La Violette. They thought they were finalizing the details and that we should be hearing something soon. I had put out a tweet that said I thought they were going to make the announcement by the end of the week. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to hold off on the podcast until we get that news, and that way the pod can be more reacting to the news as opposed to maybe recording something, and then before I even upload it, the news comes out. So I decided to wait again last week, and then it lingered and lingered and lingered finally to the point where we got the announcement on Tuesday. So I'm sorry for making you guys wait. I have been itching to get back behind the mic and talk to you, but I'm glad now we can do it with some clarity. It's been well over a month not only since we last spoke, or I think it's been about a month since we last spoke, but it's been over a month since the Rangers and Gerard Gallant parted ways. I believe that was on May 6th. Here we are recording now on June 14th. I said at the time during our last episode when we had Emily Kaplan on to talk about the coaching search that I expected Chris Drury to take his time, but I'm not sure if anybody anticipated the Rangers being the last team standing without a coach. I know the Columbus Blue Jackets haven't officially announced Mike Babcock yet, but that was reported about two weeks ago, so everybody's kind of known which direction they were going. The Rangers, for all intents and purposes, were the last team standing on this coaching cycle. Right off the bat, I was hearing that they were going to want someone with experience. I think we talked about that on the previous episode. I know I've written about it several times, and then I reported a few weeks ago, I think it was about three or four weeks ago now, that LaViolette was either near or at the very top of their wish list and that he was looking like the front runner. 
for that reason, his hiring comes as no surprise. This is what I've been, I mean, I feel like writing at nauseam over and over and over again, almost to the point where it's like, I'm running out of new things to say about this topic. So it's certainly no surprise that he ended up being the guy, but the fact that they could have announced him weeks ago does make a lot of people wonder about whether they were longing for someone else and what was the holdup? What took so long to finally get to the point where they were comfortable putting it out there and announcing him as the new coach? So something you guys should know right off the bat, not only is Chris Drury meticulous and thorough and certainly refuses to be rushed into any decision. I think that's quite clear at this point. But he's also gaining a reputation for, I would call it like Lou Lamorello. A couple people have used that comparison to me. That kind of secrecy and not wanting any word to get out of the organization during situations like this when you're making a big decision. He's closed up a lot of the leaks in the organization. And I don't think that he wants anybody to know what he's thinking at a time like this. I do believe that with some of the changes they've made within the organization and within the front office, that it's gotten to a point now where the people that remain and the new people that he's brought in have gotten the message that he wants them making these decisions and these announcements on their own terms, very much like we see with the other team in New York, the Islanders, and and again, going back to Lou Lamorello, And that has kind of been the mantra, and that has been something that a lot of people around the league have been increasingly talking about when it comes to the way that jury operates. So that's just a little background about, you know, the search is lingering and everybody's wondering what's happened. And meanwhile, you know, not much is coming out from the Rangers. But multiple sources all along from outside the organization were telling me that they thought LaViolette was the guy, which again goes back to why I've been writing his name for all these weeks. The thing is, the longer it lingered, the more everyone was wondering, does he have a trick up his sleeve? Is there something that we're not seeing here? I know I was getting a lot of emails about Patrick Waugh. I can tell you I heard all along that that was a no, which is why if you read any of my stories that I wrote throughout this process, I never included him in anything when I was mentioning candidates because I never had any reason to believe the Rangers thought of him as a candidate. It was certainly the same for Mark Messier, who I think that was probably more of fan speculation and Twitterverse kind of a thing. But that was an even harder no, I think, than Patrick Waugh. And there were also people wondering, was it Joel Quinville? Now, there did seem to be a little bit more smoke there. I do think that there was at least some people in the organization who were either intrigued by him or wondering if Drury was intrigued by him. But obviously that never materialized either. In reality... What it appears to be is that Drury was just biding his time to see if anything else materialized. My belief, and this is also the belief of many people that I've spoken to, is that he was, I don't know if it's fair to characterize it as dreaming or wondering about one of those coaching white whales. During the previous search before they hired Gerard Gallant, I believe they were monitoring the situation in Carolina wondering if maybe there would be any hiccups in the negotiations with Rod Brindamore, who I think would have been absolutely their number one choice that previous coaching cycle when they were looking for a new bench boss. Obviously, he ended up re-upping with the Hurricanes and looks to be very comfortable there. This past fall, as we've talked about before, they definitely checked in with Barry Trotz. I believe he would have been a guy very high up on their wish list 
had he been available. And most recently, I believe they would have loved the opportunity to speak to Penguins head coach Mike Sullivan. Now, that was always a long shot. We had been hearing all along that the new ownership group in Pittsburgh, while they were cleaning house in the front office, really liked Sullivan and wanted to keep him around. But from the Rangers' perspective and from Jury's perspective, they didn't see much harm, I don't think, in, in waiting until Pittsburgh hired a new GM just to be sure. Now, we saw what happened. They ended up bringing in Kyle Dubas, and all indications are that him and Sullivan are on the same page and that Sullivan's going to be sticking around. So that idea was sort of eliminated later in the process. I mean, I think I had reported that the one source told me at the beginning of the process it was 95% sure that Sullivan was staying in Pittsburgh. And now it looks like a hundred, but you know, that 5%, I guess was at least part of the thinking in, okay, let's wait and just make sure. Because again, I think in their eyes, there wasn't much harm in waiting. I think they also want to see what happened with other teams around the league. Toronto was one of them. Who else knows who could have been unexpectedly fired based on a team that may be disappointed in the playoffs or what have you. So I think they were also just kind of waiting to see who knows who could maybe shake free and become a candidate for us. Multiple reports have indicated that they spoke with John Hines after he was let go by Nashville a couple weeks ago. It's pretty easy to connect the dots there. Him and Drury were college teammates at Boston University, won an NCAA title there together. It sounds like they still have a pretty decent relationship. So you could understand Drury talking to a guy like that, who he feels like he could have a pretty good working relationship with. But I, I was hearing all along that LaViolette was ahead of him in the pecking order. I don't think Hines was at the level of a Sullivan or one of these other guys that we've mentioned who, if he became available, that would have been a pretty sure bet the Rangers would have went after him. I think there was some interest in Hines, but it didn't surpass the confidence that I think they had in a more established guy like LaViolette. And then in the end, Drury, willing to wait on clarity in all these different situations before he makes a final decision, he was willing to do that even though it may have signaled to fans, reporters, whoever you want to say, that he wasn't 100% sold on LaViolette from the beginning. That, I think, was a consequence that he was willing to accept to wait and make sure that he had covered all of his bases, that he had weighed all options, that he had waited to see what might happen elsewhere around the league, that someone didn't end up coming available after he had hired somebody and then he's kicking himself and wishing that he would have held on a little bit longer just to be sure. I think he was willing to make that sacrifice, even though it cast doubt on LaViolette and it made the Rangers look like maybe they weren't totally in on him or totally sold on him from the very beginning. That, I think, was something that they're willing to live with quite clearly. And now what we see is, I guess we can call it a lukewarm reaction from fans. Uh, yesterday, the word I used was ambivalent, which is probably a good word to use here. There's this sense from at least a vocal segment of the fan base that there was no surefire plan A when the decision was made to move on from Gallant. I don't think I would go so far as to say there was no plan, 
Waiting was clearly part of the plan, but the perception is that they weren't in love with the choices from the get-go, which is why they held out hope that maybe someone else would emerge somewhere along the process. I think speaking from what I'm hearing from fans, there's also this level of maybe boredom with seeing the same coaches go from one place to another. For LaViolette, this is going to be his sixth NHL coaching job. I mean, how many other sports can you find guys where they get six different chances at doing one of these primetime jobs? It's happened in other sports, but it does seem to be more frequent in the NHL where you sort of have this, I know the common word everybody uses is recycling. You have the same guys ending up in the coaching cycle, and if they get fired or leave one place, they pop up in some other place pretty quickly thereafter. There are legitimate concerns, I believe, about whether his voice and his coaching methods have grown stale over time. I think when you have a guy who's been doing it for as long as he has, that has to be part of the equation. You have to feel that a guy like that is evolving and not banging his head against the wall by doing the same things over and over again, especially as you're getting older, the players are pretty much staying the same age. So you have to be able to connect to and relate to these younger generations of players. So I think that that is going to be something that we're going to watch and monitor with LaViolette. I wrote a column a few weeks ago, basically saying that I would love to see teams think outside the box a little bit more, be more open to trying new things. I, I do believe and I think this has been reported you know pretty widely that the Rangers flirted with a few first-time candidates the names that I was hearing all along I wrote extensively about Chris Knobloch who we all know is their AHL Hartford head coach and had a pretty good second half with that team this year he's been there for four seasons now the Rangers have been grooming him he's a guy that I know that they think very highly of Also, there have been whispers about Jay Leach, an assistant coach from the Seattle Kraken, and we know that the Rangers spoke to Spencer Carberry, who was an assistant with the Toronto Maple Leafs and is now the head coach of the Washington Capitals. Ironically enough, he's the guy that replaces LaViolette. But all along, even though I do believe that these guys were discussed and that conversations were had with them, you never really got the sense that they were seriously in the running. Now, Is that a mistake? Time will tell. I can't make a declaration on that today before any of these guys have coached a game in the NHL or before LaViolette has coached a game with the Rangers. Now, it won't look great for the Rangers if Carberry ends up being a hit in Washington or if, let's say, Knobloch goes elsewhere and succeeds in the coming years. But for now, it's clear they weren't willing to roll the dice on a guy like that. They weren't willing to take that chance. In many ways, it would have been more interesting had they done so. I think it would have been more exciting. You would like to think that hiring someone fresh and new like that would give you more of a chance to innovate, incorporate new ways of thinking about the game. Perhaps there's a higher upside there because a guy like that represents the unknown, whereas LaViolette very much is a known commodity. We've seen him coach at this level. We've seen him have success, but we've also seen him have failures. And I think from the fan base's perspective, that's less exciting. I equate it to this. When there's a prospect coming up the line, fans are always super excited about that prospect because that prospect represents promise, upside, potential. You you don't know what they're going to be at the NHL yet, but you dream of them becoming 
what all of their skills and, and traits and tool set might help them eventually become. We always sort of give them the benefit of the doubt. Whereas a veteran guy who you've seen at the NHL level and has maybe been so-so or hasn't established himself as a big-time player or a star, I think fans tend to be a little more dismissive of guys like that at times. So it almost feels kind of similar like that to me. You know, a Knobloch or a Leach or a Carberry, those guys are like those prospects who you you hope can turn into stars, whereas Laviolette, although you could argue he's been a, a star-level coach in certain situations, he's taken three different teams to the Stanley Cup final, he's also a guy that's been around the block quite a few times, coming off one of his probably most unsuccessful coaching stops in Washington. And I think that sort of adds to that feeling of staleness, that feeling that, you know, is this guy really going to bring anything exciting and new here? On the other hand, it's also true, and a lot of people have pointed this out along the way, that new head coaches rarely have instant success in the league. A lot of people have talked about John Cooper in Tampa Bay and Jared Bednar in Colorado. And of course, you'd love to have guys like that. You'd love to see guys come up the pipeline, get an opportunity, and then succeed with it. But even though they both eventually became champions, it did take them years to get there. You look at those guys. They didn't win the Stanley Cup in their first season or two. They won it after multiple years. Now, give those organizations credit. They were patient. They were willing to take a chance on those guys. They believed in what those guys could become as coaches, and they allowed the situation to develop. But the Rangers, at least the mindset that's coming from management and ownership right now, are are not at that point. If your hires turns into one of those guys, then of course it's worth it. And, And I do believe that more teams should aim to uncover guys like that. But for the Rangers, the pressure to win is on right now. It was on last season for Gallant, and it's going to be on LaViolette now moving forward. And that begins right off the bat. If the Rangers don't have a really good season under LaViolette this year, it's not out of the question that they could be moving on pretty quickly. So again, I think that's an expectation from Chris Drury. He's at a point now where this is his second head coach. And even though I think he's done some positive things since he's been here and the Rangers made the playoffs in each of his first two seasons as team president, the pressure's on him now to get them to that next level and make them a champion. And if that doesn't happen in the near future, then he becomes at risk as well. But it also comes from ownership. I I had one source tell me, not to discount Dolan's role in wanting an experienced coach. I don't think it was just Drury who was thinking that way. I do think that ownership wanted to feel like they were getting a guy who has done it before and is capable of doing it again. It's also fair to point out, you look at the teams that just played in the Stanley Cup final, Bruce Cassidy, who is now a Stanley Cup champion for the Vegas Golden Knights, and Paul Maurice, who went on a great run with the Florida Panthers, Those guys are both fairly well-traveled, especially Maurice. The Rangers are hoping for a similar outcome with LaViolette. And I do want to stress this. This is kind of how I'm going to wrap up before we get to our interview with Tom. I do want to stress that I do believe there are reasons to view LaViolette as an upgrade over Gallant, and I want to outline a few of those things right now. The track record alone, as I touched on, that if you just look at wins, losses, playoff success, that type of thing, LaViolette has a much more impressive resume. I mentioned he's taken three different teams to the Stanley Cup final. He did it 
with the Flyers. He did it with the Hurricanes and he did it with the Nashville Predators. And of course, with the Hurricanes, I know it was a long time ago, but in 2006, they did win the Stanley Cup. And there is also hope that from a systematic standpoint, that he is going to be a better fit for the Rangers than Gallant was. I know the Rangers had a better record the last couple seasons under Gallant than the Capitals had under LaViolette, but this should be noted. The Capitals, whether you're looking at actual goals or you're looking at some of the analytics and expected goals and things like that, both categories, the Capitals were a better five-on-five team under LaViolette than the Rangers were under Gallant. Now, the Rangers, of course, had the edge in special teams, and they certainly had the edge in net. And I'm sure that LaViolette is licking his chops at the idea of having Igor Shosturkin as his number one goaltender and implementing a system in front of him that he believes will work. So there are reasons to look at this and say, okay, LaViolette, he took this Asian Capitals team, which by the way, and Tom is going to touch on this, I'm sure, in a couple minutes. I know this entered the Rangers line of thinking. The Capitals, not only were they aging the last couple of years, but they dealt with some pretty serious injury issues. And I know a lot of people that I've spoken to believe that that played into, especially this past season when the Capitals didn't make the playoffs. Interestingly enough, LaViolette has coached parts of 21 seasons in the NHL. He's only had three losing seasons out of 21. This past was one of them, but only by, I think, I think there were two games under 500. So the Capitals had plenty of issues. And I think some people will tell you that they don't necessarily blame LaViolette for that when he was being given a roster that was certainly long in the tooth and certainly had some injury issues. But with this Rangers group, which at least on paper probably has more talent than the Capitals did and certainly more young talent than the Capitals did, the belief is that LaViolette will be able to get more out of them at five on five. And again, his Capitals team outperformed the Rangers at five on five in the last three seasons while LaViolette was there. So improving that five on five play, as I've been stressing repeatedly, is going to be a huge priority. The Rangers have lagged behind in that area the last couple seasons, and they need to get better there and get better in front of Igor Shosturkin in order for them to really become a true contender. And the type of things that LaViolette is expected to be better at, his teams traditionally have been better at, are some of the issues that we saw with advancing pucks, zone entries, zone exits. We saw the Rangers way too often get pinned in their own zone or make turnovers through the neutral zone. And LaViolette is expected to clean some of that stuff up, implement more neutral zone structure. The Capitals were considered a pretty well-structured team, especially coming through the neutral zone, and they were able to play with speed and create some rush opportunities. Definitely a better possession team than the Rangers have been. He's going to encourage guys to string passes together, more so than I think Gallant did. Gallant was more about advancing pucks by dumping and chasing and then going and winning battles behind the opposing net, getting into those greasy areas and sort of making teams pay physically. But the Rangers aren't built like that. The Rangers are much heavier on skill than they are on physicality. And the idea, at least, is that LaViolette is going to encourage that skill to make plays and not just dump and chase the puck, but make passes to move the puck up the ice and do so with speed. He's going to really try to make this a fast-paced system. Now, Gallant talked about playing fast 
all the time, but it's hard to play fast when you're constantly giving the puck back to the other team, whether that's a turnover or whether that's because you're dumping it behind their net and you're not able to recover it because you don't have the type of players who are going to go stick their nose in there and win all those one-on-one battles. So the idea here is that the Rangers didn't have the personnel to pull off Gallant's system consistently enough. And quite frankly, I think he refused to adjust. And now they're hoping that LaViolette will be able to get more out of this group by putting more structure in, encouraging more passing and more possession and more things that are going to help the Rangers become a better five-on-five team. Now, Gallant, that simplicity, my impression at least, especially from talking to players, is that it was refreshing for them at first, but it wore off rather quickly. And I think we've seen him that with him now in multiple stops. I think there's an initial boost Players feel a certain freedom under him. Players feel like he's really keeping things simple for them, not overworking them, you know, letting them play a game that doesn't make them think too much. But at the same time, eventually, when you need to incorporate more creativity beyond just shuffling the lines all the time, there was sort of a lack of ingenuity. Adjustments are another part of this. Multiple people I spoke with believe LaViolette will be a better in-game manager than Gallant was. Certainly, the Rangers did not feel that he did enough against New Jersey in the first round, that over the course of that series, as the Devils started gaining momentum and making adjustments and doing things that the Rangers were having issues with, that they weren't able to find the right counter moves. And there is a belief, I think, around the league, and certainly from the people that I've spoken to, that LaViolette is better equipped to do those sorts of things. Now, are there concerns? Absolutely. Will he get caught in that cycle that so many coaches do of leaning on the safe veterans, especially when the expectations to win are so high, rather than giving young players more opportunities? That is certainly something that I think bears watching. He needs to get more out of Lafreniere and Kako and Hedl and some of these young guys on the roster, whether a Brennan Othman ends up playing this year or a Will Cooley or any other prospects that might be coming. That's critical. I I, I think that this narrative that the Rangers are only going to go as far as Panarin and Zabanajad and Fox and those star level players take them is true in part, but I don't think those guys can do it alone. And if you look at the top six for this team and who they have under contract right now, Kako almost certainly is going to have to play in the top six right now because of the lack of right wing depth that this team has, but they got to get more out of Lafreniere as well. And I think While you could say they haven't completely earned those opportunities yet, I also think that they need those opportunities to grow. I think it kind of goes hand in hand there. They're going to need more top six time. They're going to need a longer leash because I think that Gallant's short leash in a lot of those situations really fractured their confidence and had an inverse effect. And you're also going to need to start considering giving those guys more power play time so they can get the type of easier points that make them feel good about themselves. So I do certainly want to see how LaViolette handles those young players. I also wonder how his temperament is going to play with some of the stars on this roster. The Rangers have guys who I think in large part are a little more introverted, aren't big, rah-rah, yelling, loud kind of guys, whether it's a Zabanajad or a Panarin or a Kreider or a Fox. And so 
I'm curious to see how a guy who's known as a bit more of a disciplinarian, who's known as a bit more of a louder, yeller, fiery kind of a coach. Now, you're going to hear from Tom in a few minutes that I don't know if he's quite at the level that he was maybe earlier on in his coaching career. He has maybe mellowed out a bit, but there's still that fire in there, no doubt about it. So how is that going to play with some of the players on this roster who haven't really had much of that or haven't responded very well to that maybe in the past? There's definitely a sense that the players want to be pushed harder, and Laviolette will surely do that, you have to hope that he's going to do a better job of galvanizing the group and motivating the group. He seems much more likely to give one of those motivational pregame speeches or intermission speeches, which we know Gallant always said he did not do. But is it going to clash at times? You know, I think he's going to need to be pretty strategic about how he goes about that process and where he picks his spots. I also think it's going to be really important for him to build relationships with the key players on this roster without overstepping. We've talked before about how David Quinn was kind of had the reputation as a little bit of a micromanager, and I think players got a little bit annoyed with that at times. But then you went to another extreme with Gallant, where I don't think he had very close relationships with many players in the team at all. It was very much a business relationship. You show up at the rink, we'll we'll have a a short practice. I'll see you at the games, but I'm not really going to bother you otherwise or, or make a you know big effort to try to get to know you very much. So it's sort of a fine line between the two. I think Gallant was too distant at times and hands off. And I think that the players felt like they needed to have a little bit more of a connection with him. So it's going to be on Laviolette now to sort of bridge that gap. These are all things that we're going to be watching and monitoring once camp starts. We've got a long way to go until then. Now, Laviolette will be formally introduced on Tuesday. So we'll get a chance to ask him some of these questions, but a lot of these questions aren't going to be answered until we see how it plays out in practice settings and especially on the ice in games over the course of a full season. But in the meantime, I did want to get someone on the podcast this week who would maybe help us get to know what LaViolette was like in his previous coaching stop in Washington. And so with that, after my long-winded opening segment here where I think we hit on a lot of different points, I hope I didn't bore you guys to death too much. I think we we had a lot of different things that I want to touch on, and I think we did for the most part. But now let's get a fresh voice in here, and let's hear from Tom Galitti, who is going to talk about what went down with LaViolette and the Capitals the previous three seasons. So here's Tom. Now let's welcome into the program a man who is going to help us get familiar with the new coach for the New York Rangers. That would be Tom Galitti. He covers the league for NHL.com, specifically spends a lot of time covering the Capitals, which is why he's a great person to to help us get to know Peter Laviolette a little bit, having spent the last three years spending a lot of time covering him. So, Tom, I know you're busy. I hope you're having a good time in Vegas, and thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be on with you. Uh, yeah, it's been a busy time, uh, but fun time. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. And we'll see what happens. He's getting ready for game five tonight, has to leave for the arena in a little while. But before you do that, let's chat a little bit about Peter Laviolette. You know, a lot of Rangers fans, I think the reaction to this is somewhat subdued, I think, considering 
the track record. This is a guy who eighth all time on the NHL coaching wins list, won a Stanley Cup championship in Carolina, has been to the Stanley Cup finals three times. Yet I think because of all the stops he's made with the Rangers now being his sixth head coaching job, there's a little bit of this feeling of, you know, this is a guy who's who's been around a while. He's not that fresh and new and exciting. So I guess from your perspective, having covered him, like what can you tell Rangers fans about what they're getting and maybe some reasons that they should be excited? Well, I, I guess start with the things that you mentioned about like he's had success before he got to Washington. The three jobs before that he had gone to the Stanley Cup final in either his first or second year. Um, so, and one obviously in Carolina, like you mentioned, Washington was ran into an older team that, I mean, really, if you look at his three years, there was kind of a, um, imperfect situation that the first year was the COVID year where, you know, you don't know what lineup you're getting from game to game. And, and they actually ended up, I think, uh, tying for first in the, in the division that year. And then they were banged up going to the playoffs. Ovechkin was hurt, played hurt, Backstrom played hurt. They just... You know, and they lost to Boston in the first round. The next year, made the playoffs again, but again, were banged up. They didn't. I, if you look at their three years, they were they were not healthy. The last two years, they didn't have a full lineup for one of any of their games. If you started who what you thought would be their ideal lineup at the start of the season, they never had it because they were always injured. Part of that, or a big part of that, is because they had an older team, so it was hard to stay healthy. Then they also had some bad luck, so he had that working against them. I think if they had been, you know, I think he was the kind of coach they were looking for, and I think he's the kind of coach the Rangers are looking for because he's. He's a win now coach. You know, the Rangers are not a team that's building for the future anymore. They want to win now, obviously. And he's gotten teams over the top before. So that's, I think, I think that's the reason why the Rangers let, brought him in. I think, you know, they have a three, they brought him, I guess, you know, you look at their team now, they're no longer, you know, making younger, building with young players. It's time to win. So I think that's why I think he could be, I think that's why they probably hired him because he's got, had been a coach who's had success at, with, with more veteran teams. When you look at the situation in Washington, because I think prior to the Washington job, you mentioned he had had all these teams. He took the Stanley Cup finals. And I think probably at the time he was hired in Washington, there was a little bit more excitement about it. When you look at what happened in Washington, the aging roster, some of the injury stuff you mentioned, like, do you think that it was just a situation where he was kind of dealt a, a not so great hand or, or do you see that there were areas where you felt like maybe he could have done things a little differently or a little bit better that, that might've helped him get more out of that roster. I, I think, you know, all coaches probably could have done a little more here and there and maybe he could have, there's some players he was not able to get a lot at like, you know, Anthony Mantha was a guy who they traded for his, uh, his first year was there, uh, Jacob Verona and wasn't able to get much out of him. Player deserves some of the blame for that as well. You know, Evgeny Kuznetsov, there were coaches before before Peter Laviolette who had trouble getting consistency out of him. Peter Laviolette, same thing. He had one really good year out of him. Two years were not not as good. So, you know, it's that's just kind of the way it is. You know, But if he had gotten more out of those players, they could have been a better team for sure. Um, I know that, you know, one of the one of the criticisms, at least among fans, is that he didn't play young players enough. But when you look at the teams, the young players they had, I don't know if they had you know, they, they, they played Martin Farivari as a rookie in their top defense pair. So if the guy was capable of playing, he played other guys, you know, they did, they, they didn't earn their spot. I I would say with him. And I don't think the Rangers are a team right now that is, is looking to, to, I don't think they should be a team that's looking now to develop young players at the NHL level. They need to be winning. So I don't think there's going to be a time for patience for you with young guys at the Rangers as well. But with that being said, there are some key young guys, Lafreniere, Kako. Aren't those guys old already? 
How are, <laughs> aren't they 24 and 25 years old? I mean, like, isn't it time to stop, get get past the, there might be this time in their careers? Well, Kako's 22 and Lafreniere's 21. So I think, you know, there's still this need and desire to see those guys take the next step. Obviously, they haven't reached what was at least perceived to be their ceilings when they came into the league quite yet. So, you know, I think Rangers fans are wondering, is he going to give them a long leash? Will he give them top six opportunities or is he the kind of guy who might lean more on the veterans because of the pressure to win? Um, well, what do they want? What do the Rangers want? Do they want to win or do they want to see if these guys can play better? I, I guess an ideal circumstance, you want both, right? <laughs> right. But I'm just saying, like, I mean, if I look at the Rangers right now, they're past the point of being a team that's young and building. I mean, I know you mentioned they're younger, but like they want to win now. They have how old is you know, how many more years do they have of of uh Panarin and Kreider being top players? I think they have a window. I think they actually have a window probably around three three years or something like that. So, yes, you want those teams, those guys to play better, and I imagine they they will get opportunities to play better. But, you know, we'll see how we'll see how they do. You, you want them to develop, obviously, but, again, it's a winning league. It's not a development league, the NHL. As far as systematically, you know, the kind of style that you can expect to see the Rangers play, that, that he tried to get the Capitals to play, how would you describe that? Well, when he first came here, it was definitely about, like, shot attempt volume and – shots to the net and play in the offensive zone to take pressure off your defense. He talked about playing fast and getting out of your zone fast. Unfortunately, they didn't, you know, when they had guys hurt or they have an older, slower team, that sometimes that sometimes uh, impacts that. I think he will have more more of the tools to play the way they want to play with the Rangers than he had with the Capitals because, you know, they had, you know, they had, like I said, like an older, slower team. They, you know, they just, you know, team coaches will stress playing faster is that's not necessarily being fast team, but that, you know, it helps to have young legs and the Rangers will have some young fast legs that he can, that I think he can do more with. And I think they're going to want to play in the offensive zone and can have, can create sustained pressure and keep the pressure off the defense. And obviously he has a goaltender there, a uh, league goaltender that he'll be able to work with. Mr. Durkin, that, that's uh, going to help as well uh, for just what they want to do and the way they want to play. It, it, I, I've heard and and from you know the times that I've watched as well, it seems like there is an emphasis you mentioned on wanting to sustain offensive zone time on on possessing the puck. You know, Gerard Gallant was a guy who a lot of times would want them to kind of chip pucks deep and, and then go fight for them and play more of a physical brand. But the Rangers are a little heavier on skill than they are in physicality, so it felt like maybe that system didn't always work, especially toward the end with them. Would would you describe Laviolette as more of a guy who wants you? To string passes together wants you to possess the puck more as opposed to dumping it and going and chasing it um i think it's both uh i think they want to get the puck in and, and, and work that way and sometimes you have to dump it in but i think if they can get the puck in with control and then get sh- shots to the net get to rebounds that sort of thing that keeps the puck in the end have your have your defense and be active i think the rangers have tools to do that uh, be part of and part of the you know keeping the sustained pressure in the offensive zone. I think that that's what they'll want to do. Uh, the brain, the Capitals had, were always, a, always, even before Peter was there, were a team that liked to play heavy and grind you down physically. Um, but you have to adapt to what you have, to, what, what kind of talent you have. So I, I wonder if there'll be less of that with the Rangers, because I don't know they're not as, they're not as big a physical team as, as like you mentioned. As far as the way that you see him interacting with players and building relationships with players and how he'll manage the guys and the different personalities in the room, we, we've seen the clips of him giving some fiery motivational speeches. It seems like he does have that 
in in his tool bag. But I mean, is he usually more of a of a fiery guy, a disciplinarian, or do you see him sort of approaching guys on more of an individual basis? Like, how, how do you see him sort of managing the different personalities in the room? It, it's interesting because I've seen those videos too from when he was the with the Flyers. And I think he is maybe mellowed isn't the right word, but like the other thing is that we mentioned. I'll go back to the. The COVID thing is not an excuse, but like he couldn't do some of the stuff that he for the first two years it was like coaching in a totally different way than than you would coach normally. So that was an ad- ad- adjustment. I think mm-hmm. he is can be fiery, you know, in the locker room with the players. I think he got along well with most of the big name main guys in the capital. I think Ovechkin and those guys, you know, Carlson and those guys liked playing for him. Um, he's had, like I said, there was other guys, you know that, you know, he fell out of favor with him and maybe he could have gotten more out of what, what such as like uh, Kuznetsov. Um, and maybe they had, I remember the first year, they things did not go well between them. And they had a, they kind of had to sit down before the second year and kind of iron things out. And Kuznetsov played really well. So I think there's a possibility for him to do that and communicate with players that way. But also, you know, you still have to perform for him to to get the trust that uh, that a coach, you, you want, you know, player trust, player coach trust. Um, you have to earn that in, in many ways. Is he, you know, did you see him doing or at least hear maybe about, you know, any team building kind of things like Gallant was known for being pretty hands off. He would let the locker room police itself. And, you know, he wasn't texting guys on the weekends or, you know, trying to get to know them necessarily in that way. Like is Laviolette similar in that way? Or do you see him sort of maybe trying to build relationships more or, or, you know, as a group thing, maybe trying some team building exercises, that kind of thing. I would say probably more of a group thing. He's always had one of those, you know, um, what's the bad word for it? You know, something each year he would come up with a new, a new thing for, he gave out uh, the first year they had Cobra Kai uh, bandanas for the best defensive player and the best offensive players. And then they had the Vikings uh, shield and a axe <laughs> mm-hmm. that they handed out. And this year was a different thing about pulling on the rope. So he does stuff like that. Like I said, the first two years he was there, I don't know if he could do any much individual Top yeah. stuff with players because it was just weird situation with COVID. Um, so I don't. I I think he does communicate with players. I'll I'll, I'll example. I could come. You know, when John Carlson unfortunately was uh, hitting the puck with a head right before Christmas, and I know that that Peter was very much in touch with him during that whole time. Um, I think he communicates individually. You know, when, when Alex Ovechkin's uh, father passed away last year, stuff like that. But I don't know if you're going to be seeing a lot of I don't know, one-on-one time in that way, unless he feels the need to, you know, to do that uh, for a certain situation with a player for the way he's playing or something like that. You you mentioned a few of the guys who maybe he could have gotten more out of, but were there examples that you can point to? And I, I off the top of my head, I can think of a couple this year, but I'm, I'm curious who you would think of where maybe you feel like he helped revive a guy's career or he took a young player and guided him and made him better. You're not necessarily a super young player, but maybe a guy who came to the Capitals and was still relatively young and then got um, a boost playing under him. They've had a history of that there with even before him as guys who would come in and maybe were discarded from other places. Uh, Connor Sheary was a guy, I mean, he's not an old, he's not a younger player, but I mean, he, he had been an effective player with Pittsburgh and kind of got lost going to other places like Buffalo and and he turned out to be a pretty good player for them. Um, guys who really excelled like Nick, Nick Dowd was a player who uh, before he got to Washington was kind of like a journey, you know, not journeyman, but he hadn't really found a regular role. He turned out to be a pretty important player as their fourth line player. They, they used that line him and, and Hathaway uh, a lot against the top lines. Um, I don't know if he'll find something like that with the capital with, with the Rangers or not. Um, maybe he will, you know, uh, him, he, 
like I, he liked to have the matchup of having lines you could match against top lines and um, and th- that sort of thing uh, was you know if you played it sometimes coaches would go head to head with with skill and if they had the right home matchup I think they would lo- they would use Dowd's line when that was in that when that was intact and they were all healthy against top lines and it would actually be effective and you'd see and you'd see also uh, like a, a defense pair like Carlson or and. Veravari was more maybe in offense situations, and then and then you had Orloff in the second pair. They used him and and Nick Jensen. Nick Jensen is the player who really found himself, I thought, under Peter Laviolette. It was a kind of first couple of years with the Capitals before Laviolette got there. He kind of was lost, and he really turned into a, real, a really effective defenseman for them, a top four defenseman. So they 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 did have some guys who were able to excel under him for sure. One of the last things I want to ask about, and you touched on, it, is you know the way that he'll manage games, the way that he'll he'll use different lines. You know, is he the type of guy who spreads the ice time fairly evenly? Does he play a lot of matchups? Like, how do you kind of see him doing that? You know, Gallant tended to, I think, especially later in games, lean more on his top six and and not play his bottom six quite as much. How do you see Laviolette, Laviolette kind well, of functioning with that? Like. I know he definitely used both, you know, um, depending on the situation. Um, if, like I said, if they were, if they were trying to defend a lead, you'd see the Jim Dow, you know, Nick Dowd's line out there late in the game, or you'd see with Lars Eller when he was healthy, uh, the third line center may be out there taking all the key draws. But, uh, you know, if you're going for, you know, offense, you're going to, a lot of offensive zone draws for Ovechkin's line, you know, they a lot, maybe even more early in his, in his, in his, in his career. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, situationally they had unfortunately with the injuries they had you never really like their lines this year like went from it was interesting to see like you know, young guys mixed in when they had to play because of injuries and and then you know Backstrom came back from his injury that, that sort of thing but they, it, there's players he definitely relied upon uh and maybe shortened the bench a little bit in protecting a lead when you, you knew, knew the guy the guys who would get the puck out of the defensive zone you need to in those situations and get the puck in deep and he would rely on some guys like that for sure so I guess just to sort of sum it all up, you know, the Rangers are a team, they're on the cusp. They obviously, at least as far as how far they went in the playoffs this year, took a little bit of a step back. And I think they're looking for a coach who can get more out of their top players while also maybe developing some of that youth. I think five on five play is a big thing. The Rangers offensively did not produce a ton at five on five under Gallant. They were much more reliant on the power play. So I think they're looking for a guy who at five on five can get a little bit more out of this group. And I think they're also looking for an experienced guy who is capable of making adjustments and sort of recognizing when changes are needed. There was a sense that maybe there's a little more stubbornness with Gallant. And I think they're looking for a guy who they feel like can adapt, especially within a playoff series. So you know, looking at kind of those boxes being checked, like do you you feel pretty good about Laviolette yeah. and what he might be able to do with the Rangers. I, I do actually. I think I think he can do those things. Um, he's an experienced guy who has had one with different kinds of players, and I think that he will adapt to what they have. Um, I think you know a guy like Kreider is going to do really well. I think for under him, um, I think you know Panarin. You know those guys. He's going to he's going to lean on his top guys for sure in offensive situations, and. If they can get some of those younger younger players you mentioned to to play bigger roles and excel, you know that that definitely would help their cause for sure. Um, I I you know I, I look back to last year in the playoffs against Florida, they really could have. He had a really good game plan. They should have won the series. Really, I mean, it, it wasn't his fault they didn't win the series. Uh, they had the right game plan, couldn't didn't execute it. Didn't have the manpower or consistency to to execute it. I I think when you get 
them to, you know, playoffs are a luck. You saw it last year, the Rangers probably got lucky they got in the first round, right? They play against mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, these guys got hurt. Then they got on the bill roll. This year they had they were maybe the wrong matchup uh, with Pittsburgh, I mean, with the with the Devils. And like you said, maybe there's some adjustments that that needed to be made that weren't. And I think Peter will would definitely, you know, be able to learn from situations as the series goes on and find the right make and make those adjustments. Awesome. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for the time. Enjoy enjoy the game tonight. Maybe your last game of the season. We'll see. And uh, you know, thanks again. I'll definitely make sure to, you know, share share your handle and all that so people can find your work. And definitely if you're listening, try to try to read his stuff as he wraps up the Stanley Cup final. Thanks, Vince. And we're back. Thanks to Tom for taking some time to come on the show during what I know is a very busy time for him. Working for NHL.com, I believe he's been on the road for pretty much the entirety of the playoffs. Didn't sound like he's been home in a long time. And right before we spoke, he was getting ready to cover game five between the Vegas Golden Knights and Florida Panthers. Now, I'm sure in some ways Tom was a little relieved to see Vegas end that series. So he finally gets to catch his breath and go home, be with his family, and finally get a little bit of a break here. But I do appreciate him squeezing us in. I'm feeling like maybe in certain areas we weren't totally in agreement about maybe some of the priorities for the Rangers, especially when it came to some of the stuff with young players. I think that that is of the utmost importance, along with getting more out of the stars and and getting the Rangers to become what they hope will be a championship-level team. I think it's a necessity to elevate Lafreniere and Kako and some of those guys in order to accomplish that, because I don't think that, as we've spoken about earlier in the show, the likes of Panarin and Zabanajad and Fox, as good as they are, are going to be able to do it alone. I think that we certainly saw that at times this past season. So I definitely, I think I would maybe disagree with Tom a little bit there, but as far as the the win now mindset the, the Rangers are in, He absolutely is right about that. That is clearly why they made this hire. And I also thought that he made an interesting point about the effect that coming into the capital situation at the height of COVID. Remember, he started in Washington during that 2020-2021 season, which was only a 56-game season. And there were tons of restrictions, daily testing, all kinds of stuff. I'm sure that limited his involvement and interaction with the players. I'm sure that made it a very strange situation for a coach who was trying to change the culture and implement his ways and his style and his system and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's something to be considered on top of the fact that we know the Capitals have an older roster and we're dealing with a lot of injuries for most of his tenure. So I do think the COVID thing was an interesting point from Tom there, and we should maybe take that into consideration as we judge his three seasons with the Capitals. Now, we're going to move to your questions for this week's segment. I'm going to take the first one about LaViolette, but then I'm going to try to move on to some other topics from there. And I'm also going to try to get through them in a relatively timely fashion because at the end of the show, we have a little bit of business to attend to. You'll find out more about what I mean on that in just a little bit. But let's start with our first question of the week, which comes from Money Mike, who wrote, aside from a Stanley Cup, what is the number one biggest, most definitive measure of success for LaViolette at the end of year one, end of year two, and end of year three? 
Well, first off, Mike, I wouldn't go assuming he's going to get to year three necessarily. I think there's certainly going to have to be substantial success for him to be here for the full length of his three-year contract. And quite frankly, it's rare that I would say this, but I'm not even sure that year two is a guarantee unless there is reasonable success in year one. Now, what does reasonable success look like? Obviously, you touched on it. A Stanley Cup is the ultimate goal. But beyond that, if the Rangers weren't to win a championship this coming season, what would be viewed in my mind as success for LaViolette? Well, certainly the Rangers can't go out in the first round again. They have to have some level of playoff winning and success, you know, at least make it a couple rounds into the playoffs, at least be very competitive, at least put out a performance that they can feel good about and feel proud of and feel like it was a step forward from the disappointment that we saw when they went out in the first round against the Devils this season. So a lot of how we judge him is going to be based on what happens in the playoffs. The Rangers have proven that they're a team that's capable of getting to the playoffs. Now, obviously, if somehow they didn't make the playoffs, I think that would spell the end pretty quickly for LaViolette. But it's not so much about how many points are they going to accumulate during the regular season. It's about how do they look in the playoffs and specifically, are they competitive throughout the series? And when the time comes to adjust or take a punch and counter punch and show resiliency and show that they have the right type of leader guiding them on the bench, those things are going to be critically important for LaViolette. But I think maybe painting a broader picture and including the regular season in this equation, it would go back to what I touched on in the opening segment. The Rangers need to become a better five-on-five team. Their issues at five-on-five were masked the last two seasons because they were largely a good special teams team, and they were an excellent team as far as the goaltending goes. Now, that can only carry them so far. You know, a hot goaltender could maybe take you on a deep playoff run. That's very plausible, I think, in the NHL. But you need to give Igor some more help. I wrote a big story about this a few weeks ago. They need to get better in front of him. And I think that's going to start with becoming a better five-on-five team. I touched in the first segment on some statistics in Washington that maybe make you feel like LaViolette is better equipped to do that than Gerard Gallant. We touched on some of the systematic stuff and how I think he's going to try to make the Rangers not only a team that plays faster, but a team that is more possession-oriented and is more capable of stringing passes together, not so much dump and chase, but more of moving forward with a purpose. And that's going to include some of the zone exits and entries and things along those lines. And it's certainly going to include making things difficult on your opponent to move forward. And a lot of that's in the neutral zone. I remember talking to some of the Rangers players after they played the Capitals this past season, and they talked about the Capitals being a really difficult team to play against through the neutral zone and how they were really structured in that area of the ice and how that was an issue when the Rangers played them. So you want to see some of those same things implemented now by LaViolette in New York. And Improving the five-on-five play goes hand-in-hand with some of the stuff that we've talked about, whether it's getting more out of Panarin and Zabanajad and some of the stars on this roster, along with getting more out of some of the young players and continuing their development. So I think it's all tied into it, but ultimately, you want to feel like the Rangers, at even strength, are a team that is going to be more well-equipped to handle, whether it's 
the Devils or the Panthers or the Golden Knights or the Avalanche or the Tampa Bay Lightning. Some of these really, really good five-on-five teams that have had so much success in the last few years. You don't want to see it feel like you know they're getting skated by all the time or they're getting outpaced or they're slower than their opponent, which is what it felt like a lot of times, especially toward the end of Gerard Gallant's tenure. The Rangers need to look more competitive at five-on-five, and I think that that is going to be a huge checking point for how we judge LaViolette on top of the obvious playoff success, which is going to be critical for him to, to make it last with this job. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Sonny, who wrote, what do you think the Rangers are going to do about their right wing problems, i.e. their lack of them? Well, they definitely have a lack of them, Sonny. You look at that right wing depth chart, there's only one returning guy out of the four who were playing on the right side during the playoffs for the Rangers. Capo Caco is the only returner. Patrick Kane is a free agent. Vladimir Tarasenko is a free agent. And Tyler Mott is a free agent. And I think you're most likely only going to see one of those guys back. I would have Mott as the favorite. I think he's the most likely to return of those three, but it's possible none of them come back. You know, maybe in a best case scenario, you get two of them back. I think that's unlikely. I think the Rangers are probably going to move on from Kane and Tarasenko, but they definitely one way or another need to fill some depth spots at right wing and ideally get at least one guy who can play in the top six. You're going to have to expect that Kako is going to be elevated into that role. I personally think that it's time. I think there's a good argument that he's earned it. But even if you argue that he hasn't earned it, it's kind of a necessity for the Rangers at this point. The guy was the number two overall pick in the draft now four years ago coming up. It was 2019. We're in 2023 right now. And it is time to put more on his plate. So Kako is definitely going to have to fill one of those roles, but they're going to have to find a way to fill another. And then, oh, by the way, round out their bottom six. This actually, Sonny, I'm glad you brought this up because this is the topic that I'm writing about right now. It's a story I plan to have done in the next few days. It'll run either sometime later this week or sometime early next week. So definitely be on the lookout for that. I'm going to dive a little bit deeper and I'll probably get into some specific names and things like that. But there are a few courses of action here. Now, obviously, Kaka, we've talked about, he gets elevated. There are other guys on the roster who have experience playing on the right side. We saw Jimmy Vesey do it for certain stints this season. So he's a guy that I think they would be relatively comfortable switching over. But again, that's probably more of a bottom six guy. Barclay Gaudreau has played plenty on the right side. Although, as we've talked about before, he's a guy to monitor in the coming days and weeks. Because, and I saw, I believe it was Big Lou had a question about Gaudreau somewhere in these Twitter questions as I was scrolling through them. Gaudreau's a guy to keep an eye on because I think, as I've said before, If there's anybody at risk of being a cap casualty that the Rangers may look to move to help them create a little more financial wiggle room, I think Goudreau probably tops that list right now and his $3.6 million salary. To touch on, I think, what Lou's question was, is would the Rangers attach an asset to trade him? Right now, I don't believe they would do that. They value the player. I think in an ideal world, they would like to keep the player. This is not a situation like with Patrick Nemeth last year where we knew he wasn't going to play, and therefore the Rangers had to kind of take their medicine and give away draft picks on top of convincing another team to take away his salary. I don't think 
that Drury would be willing to do that for a guy that we know that he thinks highly of and we know is still a useful player for the Rangers. I do think they would entertain training him if they were able to recoup, let's say, a mid-round draft pick. So they would add an extra pick on top of being able to get rid of that salary. And I would not completely dismiss the buyout possibility. Now, the buyout window, or at least the first buyout window, is going to open up on Friday. And so it's not entirely out of the question that Gaudreau could end up being a buyout candidate at some point in this window before we get to free agency. Because his contract is written in a really interesting way. I know I'm kind of getting off topic here with the right wing thing, but this does kind of play into it because he is a right wing option for you. His contract is written in a way where if they were to buy him out this summer, not only would they save the full $3.6 million this upcoming season, they would actually save an additional 200000 So they would save $3.8 million this coming season, which we know is going to be their most difficult salary cap season to manage. Because after they get past this season, the cap is expected to go up by a much more significant margin once we finally get out of this flat cap era and the players have finally paid back enough of their escrow to sort of release things and open things up financially from a league perspective. So if the Rangers are looking at it in the short term, which I believe in a lot of ways they are, they could say, listen, we got to maximize the potential of this roster right now. And buying this guy out would save us $3.8 million. It's possible. And actually, it would also save them $3.7 million the following season. So buying him out would create some cushion for them the next two seasons. The problem is beyond that, there's like a five-year run where it would cost them cap penalties and would sort of be this burden hanging over them you know, moving forward for quite some time. So you never want to buy a guy out. That's not an ideal situation. I'm not necessarily predicting that it's going to happen, but I am predicting that it will at least be discussed. It's an intriguing option because of the immediate savings that it presents. So that's sort of a side note, something to keep an eye on in the coming days and coming weeks. I, I Again, I don't think they're going to trade him with an asset attached to him, but I think they would trade him if they got an asset back. And I think a buyout is something that we should definitely be aware of, at least in the coming days and weeks. But again, this is the player who could certainly play a role for the Rangers next season. And I don't necessarily think that they want to get rid of. So him and VC, I would put in that category of maybe being right wing options if Goudreau sticks around next season. But that's not going to be enough right there. You're going to need to find ways to add, especially a guy who you feel like can play in the top six. Now, if Tyler Mott resigns, Tyler Mott is a guy who play, can play some right wing as well. Is he a top six option? I think most people would say no, but I did have one source say to me a few weeks ago when I was writing about some of the Rangers free agents. Mott is a guy who has a lot of similar characteristics to what we saw from Jesper Faust when he had so much success on that second line playing right wing opposite of Artemi Panarin. So don't be surprised, I think, if Mott is a guy who they look to to maybe slot in in a spot like that, especially if they're not able to find any other options that they like. So we could throw Mott into the conversation if he resigns. We could throw Goudreau if he sticks around. We could throw VC into the conversation. But you're going to need probably more than that. And there's really two other directions I think the Rangers can go. Or actually, I should say three. The first would be a trade. I do believe that that is the most 
likely option for the Rangers if they're really going to make a splash on this roster. Because again, the salary cap space is so limited. So I think Chris Drury is going to try to get creative on the trade front and fish around for what might be available out there. And right wing would certainly be at or near the top of the areas that he'll be looking to fill. So I'll probably dive into my story into some more specifics, maybe a couple teams that might be options out there. We know the the Winnipeg Jets are a team that seems like they're going to be in a selling mode this offseason. The Calgary Flames are a team that seems like they could be in a selling mode this offseason. A few other, maybe if you look at some of the teams that are hoping to get involved in the lottery next season. So I would fish around in some of those areas, but I do think a trade is a possibility for sure. And I think that that is going to be an easier path for the Rangers than free agency. Now, free agency would be the second option here, but they're not going to be able to afford anybody who is making much more than a veteran minimum type of salary, maybe a million dollars or so at most, you know, million and a half, two million, even that might be a stretch for them. So if you're going to go in the free agent route, you're going to need to go bargain hunting. And that's usually not going to be a top six type of player. So I do think it's likely that they'll bring in a cheap free agent or two, a cheap forward or two to sort of add competition into the mix. But they're certainly not going to be in the market for some of the the biggest names that are out there in free agency. And then the third option here, and this is something that we're going to continue to talk about until we get some clarity one way or the other, is do any of the young players on this roster or coming up in the pipeline have the capability of playing on the right side? Because a lot of the Rangers' top young players are left-wingers right now. Obviously, that list starts with Alexi Lafreniere. We've seen them try that for short spurts, but they always seemed reluctant to give it a go for a long time. Now, was that Gerard Gallant or was that Lafreniere pushing back on the idea publicly in my conversations with Alexi Lafreniere, whether it was one-on-one or bigger group interviews, he always said all the right things and said that he would be happy to shift to the right side. But Gallant always said that he didn't think that he looked comfortable there. So you can kind of try to figure out on your own who that was more about. Maybe LaViolette will be more intrigued by the possibility and more open to sort of letting it play out and giving him a longer leash there. So could Lafreniere finally make that switch on a more permanent basis? Or one of the younger guys, could Brennan Offman play on the right side? He's said that he's willing to do it, but you look at his track record, he's mostly been a left winger throughout his junior career. And the same goes for Will Cooley. This is a guy who's played mostly left wing. That's where he played mostly for Hartford this season. So you're you're asking a young player to make the switch. Now, there's not enough room on the left side for all these guys. So it would behoove someone to make that leap. But do they have anybody that's not only willing, but capable of making the switch? I know it kind of seems like it should be a simple thing, but for some players, the fact is it's not that simple and it throws them off their game. And if you want to maximize their potential, a lot of times it's best to just keep them on their natural side. So this is all stuff that I think is going to be part of this conversation. But the larger point here, Sonny, and again, this is what I'm going to try to write about more detail coming up in the next few days. They have a right wing problem right now, and they're going to have to get creative as far as how they fill some of those spots. All right. Final question here comes from Michael Silvers, and this was a frequent question, so I wanted to address this. We'll get into what we can here, but uh, my answer might be disappointing to some. Michael wrote, what seems to be the issue regarding getting any information on Jim Ramsey's dismissal? The Rangers aren't talking. 
Ramsey hasn't said a word. For a 29-year relationship to end without any sort of acknowledgement just seems very, very odd. Any insight? So for those who don't know, Jim Ramsey is the longtime trainer for the Rangers. He's been in this organization or had been in this organization for, I think, as long as anybody. And Arthur Staple reported a few weeks ago that he was not being retained. Now, that caught me completely off guard. I would never have expected him to be gone. He is, at least my interpretation has always been, that he's beloved by the players. They all speak super highly of him. When I observe their interactions with him, it's always laughing and smiling. They all seem to have complete trust in him. They all take opportunities during interviews to to praise him and bring him up by name. So he's always been perceived as a really well-liked guy in the locker room and well-respected, not only in the Rangers organization, but around the league. So the fact that he's not coming back is certainly a head scratcher. But here's the reality. As Michael touched on, the Rangers aren't planning to address this. It doesn't seem. And listen, Chris Jury is going to be at the press conference with Peter Laviolette on Tuesday. But I told you guys earlier in the show, Jury has been super tight-lipped about pretty much everything since he took this position. And I would be willing to bet my house on it that if that question comes up, it's going to be pretty fruitless and you're not going to get anything there. He's certainly not going to come out and explain what went on or why they made that decision. It would be a deflection. I'm 100% positive, quite frankly. So it's something that I have asked a couple people about, haven't been able to find out a whole lot on. And honestly, I don't think we're going to hear anything from the Rangers. I certainly don't think we're going to hear anything from Drury. I only think, you know, the way that you might find some more information out about why this went down and why he's leaving, whether it was a firing or his decision or what have you, would be if it comes from Ramsey himself. And right now it doesn't look like he wants to go there. You know, I'd be happy to talk to him if he did. I have a lot of respect for him. I thought that he was really kind of fun and funny to engage with and deal with, you know, in my interactions with him occasionally around the training center. Definitely a funny guy, definitely a lighthearted guy, definitely seemed to me to be a pretty genuinely nice guy. But I don't know if he's going to want to go there. And I certainly know that the Rangers don't want to go there. So unfortunately, maybe over time, more information will come out. It's something that I guess I'll continue to try to find out little bits and pieces where I can. But right now, everybody has been quiet on this situation. And that's why I really don't have a whole lot to report or tell you, unfortunately. You know, you would like to see them give a guy like that a little bit more of a send off. And the fact that they haven't done so yet is definitely interesting. But I'm not going to sit here and speculate as to why it happened, because I quite frankly don't have enough information to do that. All right. Last thing. It's time to end the show. It's been a long one, but we had a lot to get to, obviously, with the Laviolette news and just catching up after not having a podcast for about a month. I will tell you guys I'll be back next week. I'm actually leaving for my bachelor party on Wednesday, so I'm really glad the Rangers scheduled this press conference for Tuesday so I can attend it and cover it, and I'm going to try to get a podcast out next week right after that before I go away, so you should have a new episode coming your way next week. But one of the things I want to have settled before we have another episode is finally deciding on what our new intro track will be. Now, some of you might have had a double take when this episode first started because you heard the original New Ice City theme song, which 
we had for the first 100 episodes start us off this week. But in the time since then, we've had a dozen or so new tracks that we've tested out and allowed you guys to hear. And I want to once again thank everybody who participated and submitted their track throughout this process. It was so cool to to hear from different listeners about how much they love the show and how much they wanted to be involved. And I so appreciate you guys taking time to either submit tracks that you had already come up with on your own time or write something entirely original for this show. Really cool. Love the creativity from everybody. Love the enthusiasm from everybody. And I'm so, so appreciative of everybody, of course, who listens you know, regularly, but especially of you who t- went the extra effort and the extra mile and took time out of your own busy lives to submit your tracks. But now it's time to make a decision. And based on feedback from a lot of listeners, I have sort of narrowed it down to a top five. And what I want to do here is I'm going to play 10, 15, 20 seconds of each track. I'll let you know who submitted it. Make sure to give them credit. And then I'm going to do a Twitter poll, probably at some point on Thursday, and ask everybody to vote for what your favorite of these five is. And from there, we will make a final decision, and that will be the intro track that you hear every week on this program moving forward. So, funny enough, we narrowed it down to these five, and I was like, okay, I'll play them in alphabetical order. All five people who we narrowed this down to, their last name starts with an M. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, weird little quirk or side note here. But we're going to go through these five, and we'll finish with the fifth and kind of let it play out. And then please, after you've had a chance to listen to each of these, take some time to vote because I would love to have your input. So let's start with this first track, which comes from James McCaffrey. Next up is Brett McEckern. Here we have Rob Milano, who is actually the only one who submitted lyrics. So here comes Rob. We'll be talking about things that we like, maybe some hockey. Oh yeah, we're skating on by weather in Chinatown. Or on a train to Penn Station, you'll need the city sound. Now we have Jason Malonick.
And this final track is going to come from Liam Maroney. So thanks again to James, Brett, Rob, Jason, Liam, and everybody else who submitted. Thanks again to everybody who listened this week. I'm really glad to be back. It's going to be an exciting time in the next few weeks with the draft coming up and free agency and all that sort of stuff. But for now, let's let Liam Maroney take us out for this week's episode. And then again, please vote and let me know which track you want to see us keep on permanently as our intro track for the foreseeable future. So thanks again to everybody, and I will talk to you guys next week. (laughs) 